Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. I am your host, Howard Sides. Today we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation. Uh, the point we have reached is Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, the end of that. Uh, the phrase there mentions the thousand years, uh, referring to the millennial reign, and that's what we've been studying uh, for a couple of podcasts now. And there's not a lot of information in Revelation about this millennial reign, this thousand years. So most of the information we have comes from the Old Testament. Uh, God gave many of the prophets there uh, details about this time period. So that's where we've been getting most of our information. Today we're going to focus on the uh, structure that will be built during the millennial reign, the kingdom reign, however you want to refer to it, which uh, the structure I'm referring to is the actual temple. And God gave the intricate details of this vision to Ezekiel, and he writes about it in chapter, uh, let's see, Ezekiel chapter 40, 41, 42, and 43. Right, there we go. Yeah, I think it includes... 44 and on, but this, this is what we're going to focus on mostly here. Okay, so if you want to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 40, we're just going to uh, just start reading from the top and go down through some of the details that's pulled out here. Now, some of this is meticulous, de meticulous details about such and such cubits and such and such cubits, but for the sake of this podcast, we'll take our time and we'll mention them. I'll tell you what the uh, translation is into... Uh, American uh, references of measurement in feet. Uh, most of it is going to be in feet. We're not going to deal with inches very much, but most of it's in feet. So we'll, we'll just kind of stick with that. Okay, so to kick this off, uh, let's just start uh, Ezekiel chapter 40, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. This is basically the first section we're going to be talking about, which is the man. The man. Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 1 through 4. In the five and twentieth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year, after that the city was smitten, in the selfsame day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither. In the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain, by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand, and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears, and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee, for to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. Okay, so Ezekiel starts off here, uh, let naming off all these numbers. You know, the twenty-fifth year of captivity, beginning of the year, tenth day of the month. Uh, if you calculate this out, it's given us a date, a very specific date. It's April the twenty-eighth in five seventy-three B.C. April the twenty-eighth, five seventy-three B.C. And the uh, the, the kickoff, the, re, the reason it's this specific date is this date represents the first day of Passover. And not just that it's the first day of Passover, because uh, what's going on here is, is to kind of give you an idea, it says in, in our captivity. Of course, this is talking about the Jews that have been captive un, under Babylon, and they've been captive for about 25 years when he writes this. Now, the significance for this particular day is not as much in that Passover was to remind them of their deliverance from Egypt, but Passover also signaled the beginning of the religious year for Israel. And the Lord most likely timed this vision to correlate with, with this point. Uh, so the beginning of a new year, the religious year, uh, this this temple in, in the millennial reign will obviously be a, a very brand new uh, beginning of, of what's significant there. So that that's why... Uh, I think he makes that point there. Now, verse tw uh, verse 2 here, uh, Ezekiel tells us that he was taken by God. 
to a very high mountain in Israel. Now, if you'll recall, uh, God took all, Moses also to a high mountain to give him the plans for the tabernacle. And here, God takes Ezekiel to a high mountain to show him this future temple. And uh, again, it's, it's, it's not hard to believe uh, that he's showing Ezekiel something in the future. Uh, there's many examples in the Bible. Um, I'm a firm believer that, that uh, and if you've never heard me mention it before, I'll mention it now. Uh, Brother James Knox, the pastor of a church down in DeLand, Florida, D-E-L-A-N-D, Florida, uh, has many podcasts online. You can find them at Sermon Audio, uh, on Facebook, uh, or not Facebook, um, what am I thinking of? Uh, YouTube, that's it, sorry. <laughs> it was missing me there for a point. Uh, but anyway, uh, he's got this message about what Moses saw. And I'll tell you that that's that's a great message. You know, and, and his point there and what he's saying is that when Moses was up on the mountain and he was talking with God and he asked God, uh, he wanted to see God's face. And of course, God told him, uh, Moses, you can't see my face. And of course, that's because of our sinful nature. We can't we can't be exposed uh, to the holiness of God one on one. Uh, because of our sinful nature. Holiness and, and sin can't interlink. They can't correspond. And so what God told Moses was, instead what I'll do is I'll hide you in this cleft, in this rock, and I'll put my hand over your face. And after I pass by, I'll remove my hand and I'll let you see my hinder parts. I'll let you see behind me. And uh, kicking it up in a couple of chapter verses or a chapter after that or whatever, when when God when Moses actually come down off the mount, uh, it says that his the glory of God was on him so strongly, uh, the people although they knew this was Moses were scared to death of him because of that close relationship with that amount of holiness, uh, and and I say it time and time again in Sunday school that we just don't understand uh, many things about the Bible. One I think is prayer. We we woefully do not use prayer close to even what we're intended to but another thing that we don't understand is this holiness of god just how holy uh, uh, an entity god is we don't uh, i mean we we've heard holy so much that we've watered it down and and there's many things in this world that that we can explain to each other uh of what it's like but unless you've actually experienced it you don't know somebody could try and explain somebody what the nuclear explosion uh in World War II and over Nagasaki and Hiroshima was like, but without being there, how do you explain that to somebody? I mean, you can see pictures of it, you can see videos of it. Uh, Mount Everest, how do you explain how high that mountain is to someone who's never actually been there? What what do you have to compare it with? So that's what I'm getting at. But in James Knox's message, what he's saying is what God was actually showing him that hinder parts was he went he took Moses back in time and showed him creation. He showed him uh uh the creation of Adam and Eve, and all of what they went through. And that's how Moses actually became the writer of the first five books of the Bible. And that's how he could write it, was he had a first-hand account of it. And you think, well, that was going in the past and all that. Well, it, it, we're actually in the book of Revelation, where John, uh, God takes John into the future and shows him all these things that happened in Revelation. So it's, it's not a stretch to see that God could take Ezekiel and do the same thing with him. And that's what he's done, what he's done here. He's taken him into the future. And and shown him some things in the future uh, that he wants him to write down in this book. And we'll see uh, in a little bit later uh, point here. But now recall also uh, that this temple that he's seeing, most people agree that it will mo probably be situated on top of Mount Zion. Okay? It, it doesn't come right out that, that I've seen. Uh, and specifically say it'll be in the mountains. I may be wrong there, okay? I may be wrong. I haven't seen it myself. I haven't read it. I've been focused on studying this book so much. I haven't really studied it to that point. But but there are some um, scholars that argue that Mount Zion cannot be the place uh, because it's not a very high mountain at all. But then again, you have to realize they may be overlooking the geographical changes that will take place uh, recorded in Zechariah before this temple is actually established. In Zechariah, what I'm referring to is Zechariah chapter 14. Um, two verses there tells us uh, some things that's going to happen in the future. In verse 4 and verse 10, I'll read those for you. Uh, 
Uh, if you want to turn there, Zechariah, very near the end of the Old Testament, you go to Malachi and go back one book. Uh, I believe that's where Zechariah is. I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to look, but I'm going to look just to be sure. Yeah, Zechariah's writing. Because there's Zephaniah and Zechariah, and you kind of get them, but it's Malachi and then Zechariah right in front of it. So in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 says, And his feet, talking about Christ, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Uh, obviously, it must be Mount Zion. Uh, Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. <laughs> okay, now get what he says here. Christ is going to come down, and his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, as he's standing there, this mountain's going to split in two, and the two parts are going to move to the east and toward the west and make this huge valley in between them. And then it turns right around and it says that half of the mountain is going to remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. So according to what that verse says, this mountain is going to not only just split in half towards the east and west, it's going to rotate and move north and south. And you're like, wow, well, God created it. He can do what he wants to, right? And then later on, verse 10, it says, all the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place, from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's wine presses. So there at the beginning of verse 10, it says pretty much a lot of this land is just going to be flattened out. So if most of it's flattened out and you got this one mountain sticking up, well, it would obviously seem a pretty high place compared to everything else. So it's not a stretch to see that when you're looking at something in the future here and we're looking at things around us and you're like, well, it can't be because it's not. Well, we're not taking into account the changes that are going to take place. OK. All right. So that's the first two verses. Now let's look here in verse three. And what's going on here is Ezekiel tells us that a man appears before him. And he's describing this man where he says that he's colored like bronze. And this indicates an angelic being of some type. Now, there are many kinds of angels, okay? Ezekiel actually mentions one uh, that's a wheel with a bunch of eyes on it. We know there are seraphim. We know there are cherubim. Uh, we know some angels by name, Michael, uh, Gabriel. But based on what we see here, uh, I tend, personally, I tend to believe this is probably a cherubim or an angel of some rank of that nature. I can't prove to you that it's a cherubim. I don't know for a fact that it's a cherubim. It just has the aura of being one, okay? I, that's the only way I can say it. But regardless of that, it is a man and he's colored like bronze, which clearly indicates it's some kind of an angelic being. Okay, but then he goes on and he says that this man is holding a line of flax or a piece of linen, linen, uh, and a measuring reed or a rod in his hand. Now the indication here is that flax is usually used for measuring long distances, and a measuring reed is used for measuring shorter distances. Now, when someone measures a property, it is symbolic of claiming ownership. And obviously by this angelic being, this man that Ezekiel is describing here, is measuring this thing out. He's therefore representing the fact that God is showing that it's his temple. He uh, He's claiming ownership of this. Now, during the time when the Jewish remnant was attempting to rebuild their temple, Zechariah also saw a man measuring the temple. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me to measure Jerusalem to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. Also, in our 
study book, Revelation, God also commanded uh, the Apostle John to measure the temple in Jerusalem before it was trampled down by the Gentiles in Revelation chapter 11. Again, verse 1 and 2. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall be tread underfoot forty and two months. Forty-two months, three and a half years. Okay, so here we see clear evidence that no matter what happens to the structure itself, Jerusalem, the city, and the temple structure belonged to God, and he would one day restore it and sanctify it once again. Now in verse 4, Ezekiel says the man tells him he will give Ezekiel a guided tour but he also tells him to pay close attention to what he sees and what he hears and to set it in his heart because he would have to tell Israel everything he records. Okay? All right, so that's the man. Now we get into the big section here, which is the measurement or measurements, however it is, because there's several of them. I like measurements. I think it's better to put it in a plural form because there's going to be quite a few of them. So let's fix that. Okay, now the measurements are recorded here in chapter 40 and verse 5 all the way to the end of chapter, well, not quite the end, but chapter 42 and verse 20. What is the end of chapter 42? And then also in 43 verses 13 through 7, uh, 27, sorry, 40, chapter 43 verses 13 through 27. Okay, so the first thing we see here uh, is that he measures the outer court, the outer court. In verses 5, all the way down through 27. Verse 5, he mentions specifically the wall. And behold, a wall on the outside of the house round about, and in the man's hand a measuring reed of six cubits long by the cubit and a hand breadth. So he measured the breadth of the building, one reed, and the height, one reed. Now what he's saying here is he's actually telling us how long this reed is, this measuring rod. It's six cubits long by the cubit and a hand breadth. And, and again, if you mention, uh, if you remember a couple of podcasts ago, uh, Merrill Ungle, <laughs> Mer Merrill Unger, <laughs> man, messed that name up, didn't I? I'm sorry about that, sir. <laughs> Merrill Unger, uh, in his dictionary, tells us that there were actually uh, three types of cubits. There was a cubit used in measuring uh, like land parcels, great distances. There was a cubit used for measuring structures, buildings, and that sort of thing. And then there was one that was used in measuring uh, like uh, gold and precious items, that sort of thing. I don't know how you get the length of that, but when you look at the tabernacle he gave measurements for that in cubits so i guess that's what it's referring to there uh so uh, uh merrill unger in his dictionary thinks that we're talking about the middle representation which would be measuring these buildings okay and so what we're talking about is a cubit would be uh equivalent to best we can figure 18 inches okay so he's saying a reed is six cubit long that's nine feet nine feet okay so this entire area is enclosed within a wall that is meant to separate that which would which would be thought um i read in one commentary um i believe it was on uh, pub, uh pulpit commentary actually i believe made the comment that that the, there are structures even around in that time uh of ezekiel's day of course he was in the city of babylon where there were these massive walls that were super thick and super high uh, so this wall around this tabernacle uh, or this temple being nine foot, it's, it's not something grandeur, okay? Uh, and the idea is that while it does separate, it still allows people who are walking by to see the structure and, and to at least be curious of it. Um, so basically, there is a gate uh, and a wall around it, but it's funneling people into the entrances. You can only come in by the ways dictated by God, and, and that's what it is. So we're, we're going to get into that here. So, uh, mentioning this, how they would come in. There is an entrance into the temple structure, or temple property, I guess I should say, 
uh, through one of three gates. There's three gates mentioned. Uh, the first gate that we'll see here in verses 6 through 16 is the gate on the east side, the eastern side. 6 through 16. Let's read that. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 6. Then came he unto the gate, which looketh toward the east, and went up the stairs thereof, and measured the threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad, and the other threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad. And every little chamber was one reed long and one reed broad. And between the little chambers were five cubits, and the threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate within was one reed. He measured also the porch of the gate within one reed. Then measured he the porch of the gate eight cubits, and the post thereof two cubits, and the porch of the gate was inward. And the little chambers of the gate eastward were three on this side and three on that side. Uh, they three were of one measure, and the posts had one measure on this side and on that side. Basically, talking, they all measured the same. And he measured the breadth of the entry of the gate, 10 cubits, that's 15 feet. And the length of the gate, 13 cubits, 19 and a half feet. So basically saying it's 15 feet wide, 19 and a half feet long. And then there's all these little chambers on each side of it as you go through it. So while you're thinking of a gate, like a swinging gate on a hinge, uh, this is a boxed-in structure. Okay? Verse 12. The space also before the little chambers was one cubit on this side. That's one and a half foot. Uh, and, and the space was one cubit on that side. And the little chambers were six cubits on this side and six cubits on that side. So it's a nine foot by nine foot uh, chamber. Verse 13. He measured then the gate from the roof of one little chamber to the roof of another. The breadth was five and twenty cubits door against door. That's 37 and a half feet. Okay. Verse 14. He made also posts of three score cubits. That's 90 feet. 90 feet tall posts. <laughs> okay. 90 feet tall posts. Now, you're talking about a nine foot fence, but then you got a 90 foot tall post. Okay. All right. Uh, he made also posts of three score cubits, even unto the post of the court round about the gate. And from the face of the gate of the entrance unto the face of the porch of the inner gate were 50 cubits, 75 feet. Now, what he's talking about there is once you actually went through this gate, uh, you would walk across the inner court and you'd approach another gate. There, there, for each gate on the outer wall, there was one on the inner court that mirrored that. Of course, we're talking the north side, the south side and the east side. So each gate on the outer perimeter, outer courtyard, had another one straight across from it. As you walk towards the temple, you'd go through a second one there. And it was 75 feet away. All right, verse 16. And there were narrow windows to the little chambers and to their posts within the gate round about, and likewise to the arches. And windows were round about inward, and upon each post were palm trees. So each one of these chambers had windows where you could look once you went into the gate, this boxed-in structure. Uh, each side had arched windows in the backs of the chambers along each side of the wall there. And it had glass in it so you could see through it. And it also had these posts that had palm trees carved on them. And you think, why palm trees? Well, palm trees are symbolic of peace and victory. Peace and victory. Okay? All right. So, this eastern gate uh, is rather unique from the others. It, it stands alone. It, it is a special gate. And you think back to the days of the tabernacle, where it only had one gate, and that gate was on the eastern side. It was in the front of the face of the tabernacle. Here is the same setup in the fact that this eastern gate is in the front of the face of the temple. But what is unique here, and we're going to flip ahead a little bit and read about it, just, just so you know what I'm talking about, over to chapter 43. This eastern gate at this day in the millennial reign for this temple is the place where the Shekinah glory actually enters the temple. And let's read what it says, verses uh, 1 through 6 here, chapter 43. 
Afterward, he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Shebar, and I fell upon my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Okay, so this is the inner gate. Now, we mentioned it a little while ago when we were talking about the actual prince who will be uh, set up and established as the leader of the, the millennial worship services that go on at this temple. And this eastern gate will actually be shut up once this kind of glory comes in. The, the only person that has access to the gate will be this prince. So technically, for people to enter into the structure, they've got to come in through one of the other two gates, which is one to the north and one to the south. Okay, three gates, not four, three gates. And we'll talk about that when we get that far. Uh, and again, when you're saying, well, why is the gate shut up? Ezekiel 44, verses 2 through 3 mentions that. It says, Then the Lord said unto me, This gate, the eastern gate, shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because, and the Lord tells us why, the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. Place of honor. All right, I get it. That makes a lot of sense to me, right? Verse 3. It is for the prince. The prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. Now, the way I read this, now you remember there's two gates, two gates to the south, two gates to the north, and two gates to the east. Being that they're to the east, we're talking about this gate on the outer court. And when Ezekiel says in chapter 43 that the glory of the Lord come through, that Shekinah glory come through, uh, then he's told in chapter 44 that this gate is to be shut and no man shall enter in by it because that's the way that the Lord came in. All right. I can fully respect that, right? But then it says that it's for the prince. The prince shall eat, the gate, eat bread for it. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. To me, what that's saying, it's referring to the gate on the inner court. That even then, uh, the outer the outer gate is closed. But the inner gate, even then, only the prince can come in and out of, of the temple structure and come down into the outer courtyard by the way of this eastern gate on the inner court. Nobody else can use that. that that's the way I understand it. I may be wrong, but it sure looks right anyway to me. <laughs> okay, all right, so we've talked about the, the wall and the eastern gate. Now, in the procession of the verses, the next thing he talks about in verses 17 through 19 are the chambers along the outer wall. The chambers along the outer wall. Verse 17, then brought he me into the outward court and lo, there were chambers and a pavement made for the court round about. Thirty chambers were upon the pavement and the pavement by the side of the gates over against the length of the gates was the lower pavement. Then he measured the breadth from the forefront of the lower gate unto the forefront of the inner court without, a hundred cubits eastward and northward. A hundred cubits, that's 150 feet. Now what he's talking about here is, is along this outer, outer wall, are, are these chambers, just like it mentioned within the actual gate structure, there's chambers, small chambers. Outside of it and on each side of the gate are these these chambers. And I think, it meant, yeah, there's 30 of them. 30 of them. And I believe if you look at that, there's one, two, three, four, five. There's five on each side of each gate. So there's 10 on each side of the southern gate. 10 on each side of the eastern gate and 10 on each side of the northern gate. That comes up to 30. All right. So there's your 30 gates, uh, chambers. Sorry, I'm getting all this turned around. 
It's going to be hard to keep it straight. Okay, so the eastern gate, very front. Then he mentions the chambers. And then he goes on and he talks about the northern gate, verse 20. And the gate of the outward court that looked toward the north, he measured the length thereof and the breadth thereof. And the little chambers thereof were three on this side and three on that side. And the posts thereof and the arches thereof were after the measure of the first gate, referencing the eastern gate. The length thereof was 50 cubits, 75 feet, and the breadth 5 and 20 cubits, 37 and a half feet. And their windows and their arches and their palm trees were after the measure of the gate that looketh toward the east. And they went up unto it by seven steps. And the arches thereof were before them. And the gate of the inner court was over against the gate toward the north and toward the east. And he measured from gate to gate a hundred cubits. That's 150 feet. All right. Uh, the next gate he mentions is the southern gate, the south gate, verse 24 through 27. And after that, he brought me toward the south and behold, a gate toward the south. And he measured the post thereof and the arches thereof according to these measures. And there were windows in it, and in the arches thereof round about, like those windows. The length was 50 cubits, 75 feet, and the breadth 5 and 20 cubits, 37 and a half feet. And there were seven steps to go up to it. And the arches thereof were before them, and it had palm trees, one on this side and another on that side, upon the posts thereof. And there was a gate in the inner court toward the south, and he measured from gate to gate toward the south a hundred cubits. Again, another 150 feet. Now, if you haven't caught on yet, it's almost like he's verbatim repeating himself. In actuality, he is. And, and you say, why does God do that? A lot of times when Paul writes these things and he repeats the same phrase and he turns it around. And even in the Old Testament, you know, they repeat some things over and over again. What is it? It, it all goes back to the structure of the Hebrew language. Now, remember, uh, these people did not have a bookstore. They did not have the written word. The only Bible that they had, per se, the word of God, was what they heard from the, from the priest, from the teachers, and from their parents. And for these people to remember and recall this stuff, God created the Hebrew language in a way that it had a rhythm about it that allowed them to remember large portions of Scripture or words of God and, and say it in, in a form of poetry. And, and the book of Psalms is, is an example, really, of how they would write them in these songs. And, that, and they would write them in these songs and sing these songs, and that's how they would recall the history. And that, that's how they could... Uh, rehearse all of this large amount of information. And this repetition helped with that. I, I mean, if you think of the structure of a song, uh, there are verses and then there's a chorus. And a lot of people would quickly learn the chorus faster than they would the verses. You know why? Because every time you read the verse and then you read the chorus, then you read the second verse, then you read the chorus, then you read the third verse, you read the chorus, read the fourth verse, and then the chorus. And if so, if you read the fifth verse, then you do the chorus. Well, each one of them verses you've said once. In fact, you've said the chorus five times or four times, depending on the size of the song. So you see how it helps you remember. The more, the more repetition there is, the quicker uh, you can learn these things. So um, one of the keys here is if you'll notice, as you come into the structure, it mentions uh, a couple of times here that you approach the gate by seven steps. And of course, seven represents the number of completion. Uh, but it also shows that by entering into this holy place, which it is, that you're stepping up. You're, you're actually elevating. Okay. Now, in all of this, note that there's no mention of a gate on the western side. That doesn't mention it at all. It doesn't come out and say there is no gate on the western side. And from what I get out of that, when the temple structure, the door, the entrance is facing the east, that's looking for Christ. You're looking at the eastern gate and it said he's coming out of the eastern sky. We're always to be looking for Christ coming. And look at east, 
The exact opposite of that would be to look west. And if you're looking west, you're actually looking back. And I think the idea behind this is that we're to continually look forward. We're not to look back. Now, I know there's sometimes, a, especially the song says, you know, roll back the curtains of memory every now and then. Sometimes it does do us good to look back, but we shouldn't focus on it because if we've got our eyes on looking back, we're not looking forward. If we're not looking forward, we're not growing. And if we're not growing, we're not looking for Christ to come. Okay, so that's the point there. Okay, now we focus our attention on the inner court. We've talked about the outer court. Now we're talking about the inner court. All right, chapter 40, verses 28 through 47 talks about it. Uh, now, this is an area, it, it's already said it, it's 100 cubits on each side. As you remember, as he'd come through each of the gates, and then it said, uh, and the gate of the inner court was over against the gate toward the north, south, east, whatever, and he measured from gate to gate, it was 100 cubits. So once you enter the outer section, where these gates are, you'd look across this inner court, and 150 feet in front of you, there's another gate, and that gate was the inner courtyard. And this is the area where uh, the priests would minister, okay? It was a, a kind of jumping ahead of it a little bit, but just kind of get the picture in your mind. When, when you come through the second gates, it was also, again, elevated up. And in one place, it actually mentioned, two places, it actually mentions eight steps. And um, if I'm not mistaken... The north gate and south gate. Yeah. The, the steps are referencing the northern and the southern side. It never mentions steps on the eastern side. I find that unique and fascinating. I would assume they're the same. Uh, but again, that's assuming something. I don't think it would be of a higher elevation. Uh, but who knows? I, you know, God said he closed the door. I and mean, Maybe there's no steps so people can actually try and enter it by mistake. I don't know. And again, the other interesting thing, when you come in the outer gate, it's seven steps. But then when you come into these inner gates, it mentions eight steps. And you think, well, what's the significance there? Well, the number eight is symbolic of resurrection, regeneration, and revival. Well, if you think about it, that sure fits. I mean, it's a resurrection of Jerusalem as the... the uh, obedient children of God. Uh, it is the regeneration in the fact that God is going to bless them and set them back in the position that they were uh, supposed to be in the beginning. And you talk about a revival. I mean, think about it. I mean, we've had some great preachers uh, in the past couple hundred years uh, who've stirred up some great revivals. Jonathan Edwards preached that message, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you listen to my last podcast, I preached on that exact same reference. And in that verse there. And he started the the revival movement in America called the Great Awakening with that message uh, from them verses. Uh, but that's nothing in comparison to what's going to take place here. I mean, think about it. Here's this temple. It, it's a church. And you've got Christ himself there and David leading the worship service. Uh, Man, if, they, if you can't get a revival out of that, um, you talk about some people being dead. Oh, yeah. You're going to be dead there for sure. So, yeah, that number eight sure fits. <clears throat> but, again, we're talking about the inner court. And, again, there's these three gates that directly mirror uh, the gates on the outer wall. Uh, there's one on the south, verse 28 through 31. Let's read those verses, and then I might skip the other one just for sake of time about the east or whatever uh but uh, the one on the south verse 28 through 31 and he brought me to the inner court by the south gate and he measured the south gate according to these measures and the little chambers thereof and the posts thereof see it looks just like the one on the outside and the arches thereof same thing according to these measures and there were windows in it and in the arches thereof round about just like on the outside it was 50 cubits long and 5 and 20 cubits broad that's 75 feet by 37 and a half feet. Looks just, again, just like the one on the outside. And the arches roundabout were 5 and 20 cubits long, 37 and a half feet, and 5 cubits broad, 7 and a half feet. And the arches thereof were toward the utter court, or toward the outer court, and palm trees were upon the posts thereof. And the going up to it had eight steps. 
eight steps. Okay, and then it talks about uh, the eastern gate, uh, verses 32 through 34. Well, look there. It actually mentions the eight steps on that one. So, <laughs> there was. I said before in error that it didn't mention them, but there it is. There's the eight steps on the eight in verse 34. It mentions them. All right, and then on the north gate, verses 35 through 37, uh, it mentions again, the structures have these arched windows, these chambers, and the post-decorated palm trees, all all rep, rep, repetitious of the same. They all look exactly the same. Now, as you get down here, uh, let's see, what's the next point? Verse 38, down through, yeah, let's read that, verse 38, because here's a little bit different. And the chambers and the entries thereof were by the posts of the gates, where they washed the burnt offering. And the porch of the gate, and in the porch of the gate, were two tables on this side, and two tables on that side, to slay therefore the burnt offering, and the sin offering, and the trespass offering. And at the side without, as one goeth up to the entry of the north gate, were two tables, and on the other side, which was at the porch of the gate, were two tables. Four tables were on this side, and four tables on that side. By the side of the gate, eight tables, whereupon they slew their sacrifices. And the four tables were of hewn stone for the burnt offering, of a cubit and a half long, two and a quarter feet long, and a cubit and a half broad, that's one and a half feet, and one cubit high. That's one and a half feet. Yeah, where, yeah, whereupon also they laid the instruments wherewith they slew the burnt offering and the sacrifice. Uh, and within were hooks, and hand broad, fastened round about, and upon the tables was the flesh of the offering. So what he's talking about here is that this north gate were eight tables, uh, four on each side, that were for preparing these sacrifices. Uh, that were to be offered up on this stone altar, which was the burnt, uh, burnt off, uh, burnt offer, offering altar. <laughs> Man, it's tough to say some of this stuff. And, and if you notice, um, if you remember in the tabernacle, the burnt offering, uh, the, the, it was the brazen altar is what it was called. That, that's why I'm getting tongue tied because I'm remembering what it's called. The, the one in the tabernacle was made out of brass. A brass altar. And here, this one's made out of stone. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that, but we'll make a comment as we get actually to the inside of the um, temple and, and talk about something there, if I remember this point. Hopefully I remember it to, to tell you later on. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I'll, I'll get to it here because we'll probably get to that to a later podcast. This is made out of stone. Um... One commentator I read, he made comment about, well, here it was, it was the end of the tribulation period, and there were no more of these precious metals laying around for people to use to make stuff out of. And it just struck me, okay, I'm thinking, well, here's God. God made that stuff anyway. God could supply it. I mean, he has vast resources. Do you think he can't find gold on all the earth? I don't think that's what it is at all. I don't think it's about that. I think it has a representation of some spiritual effect. And I'm not saying that these offerings are not as important. I'm not saying that 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 they're not they would have been more valuable on a brazen altar, but I'm saying that maybe in the reference of it it was symbolic, but it didn't have the same effect in the fact that in the Old Testament days when they brought those uh, offerings in there and and burned them on that offering that it covered their sins and it basically held the charge or or, or the the conviction or, or the, the 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 death penalty of that sin till christ came and died on the cross and then that blood was applied to all of them sins and paid for well here in the future christ's blood is still good to do that he could still uh, his blood still forgives us of our sins even today, and it will be in the future. But I think in that time, it, there's something to that. I, I haven't studied it out. Uh, maybe that's a good point. Some of you smarter than me can go and look that up. 
maybe you let me know. All right. Okay. Now, uh, reading on, verse 44. And without or outside the inner gate were the chambers of the singers in the inner court, which was at the side of the north gate, and their prospect was toward the south. In, in other words, they were on the north side, but they, they could look toward the south, I guess. One at the side of the east gate, having the prospect toward the north. And he said unto me, this chamber, whose prospect is toward the south, is for the priests, the keepers of the charge of the house. And the chamber, whose prospect is toward the north, is for the priests, the keepers of the charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok among the sons of Levi, which come near to the Lord to minister unto him. So what we've got here is at by the northern gate, the entrance of the northern gate, there's these chambers there for singers. And then on the, in verse 45, uh, the chambers to the south side, uh, the southern gateway uh, are chambers for the Levitical priests who are tasked with taking care of the house, uh, the cleaning, the carrying of the offering, that sort of thing. But but notice, and this is very peculiar, in verse 46, the chamber's prospect to the north, northern gateway, is for the priests, just like it said in verse 45. But there's a change. It says, the keepers of the charge of the altar. This This is going a little bit closer. And then he calls them out by name. These are the sons of Zadok among the sons of Levi, which come near to the Lord to minister unto him. Now, we referenced these guys earlier, uh, and, and I'll point it out again. The, the reason for uh, calling this particular group of priests out, these sons of Zadok, was because that when the other priests had turned their back on God, it was the priest Zadok who was loyal to David and stuck by David. And here it is, all these many years later, God's going to honor that. And he's calling it out and he's actually putting it in the word of God uh, to show him he respects that and, and he's honoring him for doing that. And, and while the other priests are charged with basically keeping the house, they're going to be in charge of the altar. And notice that last phrase in there. It says, which come near to the Lord to minister unto him. What an incredible statement that is. These guys have a peculiar position of honor, a place of respect for the, of the Lord and for the Lord. Okay, now, verse 47. It says, so he measured the court, the inner court, 100 cubits long, 150 feet, and 100 cubits broad, four square. So it's 150 feet, four square. And the altar that was before the house, this is that stone altar, that burnt offering altar that it was referring to uh, back in verses 40, uh, 39 and 40. Yeah, verse 39. Yeah, 38, 39. Yeah, I get it right in a minute. Okay, so that was the stone altar it mentioned there. Okay, now we'll go on. Uh, last two verses, 48 and 49. We're going to talk now about uh, the temple porch. Or, if you're fancy, it's called a vestibule. <laughs> okay, but it's the porch. <laughs> Down here in the south, it's the porch. And that lets everybody know what we're talking about. So we'll keep it simple. All right, verse 48. And he brought me to the porch of the house and measured each post of the porch. Five cubits on this side, five cubits on that side. A seven and a half feet thick posts. That's what it's talking about. And the breadth of the gate was three cubits on this side and three cubits on that side. So the gate was four and a half feet on each side. So it's talking about like two, two doors that are four and a half feet wide for each one. The length of the porch was 20 cubits. That's 19 and a half feet. And the breadth, 11 cubits, 16 and a half feet. And he brought me by the steps whereby they went up to it. And there were pillars by the posts, one on this side and another on that side. So yet again, we see as the, the closer you get, 
the more you're stepping up. The, the, the higher the spirituality. Okay? Um, okay. I'll tell you what. Uh, we've been about 50 minutes, so we'll stop there and pick up the next podcast in chapter 41. I think that's the best thing to do. Um, so we can keep it all together. Because I'm telling you, uh, studying it, and, and I've heard it from a lot of people, and I can see it. Um, Ezekiel's one of them books that, just like Revelation, it intimidates a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of these cubic measurements and, and describing these things. And people talk in a different way in his day than they do with us. Uh, like talking about the prospect was towards this way and the prospect was toward that, facing this, facing that. And there was three on this side and then there was three on us and then repeating the whole thing and all that. And sometimes you just got to have a picture to look at to, to get it. But we have to remember again, if you go Googling pictures, um, Make sure it's right. I've got one that I'm using, and I've actually had to doctor it uh, because the if you look up Ezekiel's temple and you find the picture from Logos Bible Software, I mean, I'm just going to tell you like it is. Um, the chambers listed on it are backwards. They have the northern chambers for the Zadokite priests and the southern chambers for the Levitical priests. But if you read that, 45, it says, this chamber whose prospect is toward the south is for the priests who had the charge of the house. The chambers whose prospect is toward the north is for the priests. Uh, these are the sons of Zadok. See? So it can easily be uh, construed a different way. Got to be careful. Got to pick the bones out of it, like my pastor says. <laughs> okay? All right. So I hope you've enjoyed that. Um, it, it It is a lot of information. Sometimes it, it is a little confusing. Um, but God's point here is he showing these people, even in a time of bondage, hey, it ain't over. This is not the end of the world. I am coming back, just like I said, and I'm going to set up my kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. I'm going to rule and reign, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And then after that, boof, we're going to heaven, and we're going to live there forever. That's, that's the very, very short version of it. <laughs> okay? All right. Well, I hope you've enjoyed that. Like I said, uh, thank you for listening. I certainly hope you got something out of that. Hope it didn't confuse you too bad. But we'll get we'll get through it. We'll get through it. Okay. Um <clears throat> I ask if you would you just pray for me. Um pray for pray for each other. I think that's always important. Uh, we, we don't pray enough, but pray for each one of the other listeners on this podcast. I don't know for a fact how many there are out there, but you never know who, who needs what in what time. And praying for them. Uh, if they're listening for this, obviously they're interested in learning or, or maybe they're searching for answers. Maybe they're in trouble and just looking for some peace or, or, or some answers to questions they have. Prayer motivates the Holy Spirit to, to, to do that. It, it will it will go and seek these people out and help them. That's just how it works. Okay, uh, so once again, thank you for listening. Have a great day. God bless you.